Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, I'm in lovely London, getting ready to record some podcasts. It really is lovely. The weather is perfect. That makes London especially nice. So I'm going to record a housekeeping here and then get out of my hotel room. A few things to say that have no relationship to today's podcast. I am recording this right after the Andy No assault in Portland, a few days after that has played out on Twitter. This strikes me as entirely the product of Twitter or of social media in general. This is like a physical manifestation of all that is crazy online. I think these protests probably wouldn't occur. Andy No, the journalist who was attacked, probably wouldn't have been there. All of the acrimony and insanity that one witnesses in the aftermath would have no forum. It's a very strange phenomenon. I'll catch you up for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Andy Noe is a, a journalist and editor at Quillette, which is an online magazine that's often unfairly described as being conservative. It's conservative in the way that the IDW, the intellectual dark web, is conservative. It's really just a centrist magazine that has spent a lot of time criticizing the insanity on the left. So it is branded by the left, certainly the far left, as conservative, if not enabling of fascism and racism and xenophobia and Islamophobia. All of those things have been alleged. Now, I don't know Andy. I, I think I met him once, very briefly. He, he covered the release of the documentary Islam and the Future of Tolerance, which depicted my collaboration with Majid Nawaz. I don't know his personal politics, and his politics are absolutely irrelevant to what happened in Portland. And I didn't contribute much to the resulting cacophony on Twitter. I posted one thing, but I'll just say a few things here. So what has been happening in Portland, apparently, is that Antifa, the uh, so-called anti-fascist cult, has been demonstrating periodically and allowed to do so with real impunity by the mayor, Ted Wheeler. And my one tweet on this topic tagged him. It seems to me he's been totally irresponsible in the scope he has given to these protests. I mean, I've seen video with Antifa stopping traffic and pulling people out of cars. It's madness. It's a complete breakdown of social order. And in the video where you see Andy No attacked, that's what you witness, a complete breakdown in social order. And apparently the police in Portland have been told not to intervene by the mayor. Anyway, this is the kind of story that will be picked up by the right wing. You know, Andy No will be on Fox News talking about his attack. One can only hope that mainstream sources like the Washington Post and the New York Times will talk about Antifa honestly here. I mean, Antifa is often described as a group of people who are protesting the extreme right. Well, they may be doing that, but they're also attacking innocent bystanders. 
and journalists. So what we have here is a group that imagines it opposes fascism, but they behave just like fascists. And perhaps this is no surprise, if you travel far enough to the right or to the left on the political spectrum, you find yourself surrounded by sociopaths. And Antifa, while there may be some blameless members of this movement, seems to be chock full of sociopaths, at least judging from their handiwork that you can see attested to in these videos. But anyway, the the response to this phenomenon, which again is a total breakdown of civil society, right? You've got people who are attacking nonviolent bystanders in a context which, again, appears to be a a pure confection of social media, because most of the people in these protests, most of the members of Antifa you see, are also filming. I mean, everyone has their phones out or their cameras out, filming themselves to broadcast this online. It is a bizarre moment. Anyway, the video that shows Andy getting attacked starts after the attack has occurred. I mean, there's a a few other videos, so you can sort of triangulate on this, but the video that's widely being shown is one which starts after he's already been hit at least once, and then you see someone run up and hit him twice in the face as hard as he can, and then uh, I think the same attacker then returns a moment later to kick him in the groin twice as hard as he can. There's a few things to point out about this. When you punch someone in the face as hard as you can, especially when they're not prepared for it, I mean, you just blindside them, there is absolutely no guarantee that you're not going to kill them, right? I mean, people get hit in the face, knocked out, they fall down, they hit their head on the pavement, and they die, right? This happens. It's not a high probability way to murder somebody, but it's not an especially low probability way of doing it either, right? Especially if you know how to throw a punch. I mean, if you knock someone out cold and there's only concrete to catch their fall, you can certainly kill someone this way. So you should be morally prepared to deal with that aftermath, right? To know that that's what you're doing and to know that you may very well spend a long time in prison as a result of what you've done. And I might add, in prison, you might meet some real neo-Nazis and aspiring fascists to keep you company. And that's actually what one hopes for these people in the video. If you think this is effective political work so as to get people to worry more about authoritarianism and about the heavy-handedness of the state and about the rise of the far right, it has absolutely the opposite effect. You know, you see a few videos of Antifa, you want the far right to show up, and you certainly want the state to clamp down on this kind of behavior. This has absolutely the opposite political effect. It will guarantee four more years of Trump, at a minimum, for this kind of thing to become more commonplace. And what's especially damaging is for the left to get this so wrong ethically online. I mean, you, here you have 
leftist journalists from, you know, Slate and Vice and other organizations supporting this attack on Andy, at the very least blaming him for having brought it on himself, right, for being there. Why were you there in the first place? You knew that all your prior coverage of Antifa caused them to hate you, right? This is, this is just so wrong-headed. If the left can't get this right, if liberals can't get this right, we have some very dark days ahead. Anyway, back to the attack. So he gets punched in the face twice. He gets kicked twice. Then he gets milkshakes and eggs thrown at him and dumped over him. These are not people who have hit him in the face themselves. These are people who, upon witnessing a totally nonviolent person get punched in the face hard twice and kicked in the groin, their contribution to this moment is to then hurl a milkshake or an egg at him or some other object. He gets hit with other things as well. It's not clear from the video. Um, I'll also point out that the person who punched him in the face was wearing black gloves. A lot of these guys wear these tactical gloves that have reinforced knuckles. You know, there's some people ride motorcycles with these gloves, but these are also gloves that members of the military wear. It's not like getting punched in the face with a naked fist. Imagine kind of hard plastic knuckles being built into vinyl gloves. So that only makes things worse. So watch the video and rewind it and just follow each beat in it. You'll see a few people trying to protect Andy. But this whole thing is so ugly, and it could get so much worse so quickly. There's been some discussion about whether or not the milkshakes that were being thrown at Andy actually had quick-drying cement in them. Cement apparently is quite caustic and therefore can burn you. This stuff is being thrown in his eyes. right? So I, I don't know if that was the case, but. The whole thing was ghastly and made especially so because in the aftermath, you saw people, people who have reputations they should worry about, defending this violence and ridiculing anyone who complained about it. Or they'll immediately pivot to, well, what about where were you during Charlottesville, right? Or putting kids in cages at the border is worse, right? That whataboutery completely misses the point. Yes, there are many things to complain about and worry about. And I spend a fair amount of time talking about what's wrong with Trump and what could become far worse with him, given another four years. And I'm also concerned about the far right. But I'm concerned about the complete breakdown of moral intelligence in the mainstream left at moments like this. This is a crystal clear and very dangerous violation of the most basic norms of civil society. Attacking a journalist, beating him and publicly humiliating him for merely covering a public protest. It should be impossible for liberal people to get their analysis of this wrong. And yet, they reliably do. Anyway, that was the big thing that happened in the last few days. 
It bears absolutely no relationship to the topic of today's podcast. And now I will move on. Today I'm speaking with Eric Topol. Eric is a world-renowned cardiologist and the executive vice president of the Scripps Research Institute. He's actually one of the top 10 most cited medical researchers and the author of several books, The Patient Will See You Now, The Creative Destruction of Medicine, and the book under discussion, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. And we do a deep dive into the current state of medicine. We talk about why we have soaring medical costs and declining health outcomes in the U.S. We talk about the problems of both too little and too much medicine. Talk about how slowly the field has adopted useful technology. Uh, And then we get into the current status of AI in medicine and how it could completely transform the field for the better mostly, but also in ways for the worse. Anyway, I found it a, a fascinating conversation. I felt it brought me up to speed with these rapid changes. And now without further delay, I bring you Eric Topol. I am here with Eric Topol. Eric, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, great to be with you, Sam. So um, if I recall correctly, we met at a, um, a whole genome sequencing conference, and um, I was impressed both with the promise of sequencing the, the genome at that point and also impressed in the aftermath that there, was, <laughs> there was, seemed to be almost nothing to do with the information. Um, it felt like it was a few years too early. I, I mean, are we at a point now where if we had met at that conference, there'd be more that would be actionable? Or are we still in kind of a, a place where there's not a lot to do with one's whole genome being sequenced? Well, it's definitely improving. So whereas when we met, first met, it might have been less than 1% chance it would be actionable. Now it's getting up to 5%. Right. So it's, it's definitely getting better, but we still have a ways to go. And it'll take having like a billion people with whole genome sequencing and all their data to finally make it very informative. Well, it is, it is cool, but we're sort of, I mean, we're going to talk about this in some depth in response to your, your new book, Deep Medicine, where, where you're talking about how we can use AI, not just with respect to genetics, but really all of medicine. But before we dive in, what, what's your, your background as a physician? Uh, I'm a cardiologist. I started in practice in cardiology in 1985. So I've been kind of an old dog 30-some years now. Yeah. And, and then you, you started this, the Scripps Institute for Translational Medicine? Yes. That was back in the beginning of 07. It was basically a new, broadened mission of Scripps Research, which has, had been since 1923 a basic science institute. And this is really the applied limb, which is giving it a lot of translational medical research capabilities. Right. So I guess start with a big picture before we get into the, the high tech discussion here. It does seem that medicine is broken in many ways, and, and our discussion will, will mostly be focused on the U.S. In the U.S., we spend, you know, I have this from your book, $11,000 per person per year on medicine, and, you know, that's still climbing. In 1975, I think it was something like $550, and yet our outcomes 
don't compare very well with the rest of the developed world. How do you account for that? And how, how do you view the the rising expenditure and, and seeming plateauing or in some cases declining outcome measures? Uh, well, you're absolutely right about the numbers, Sam. And I think it, it the basis of this, which is outcomes of not just lowered life expectancy now in the U.S. three years in a row, which is unprecedented, but also extends to all the important metrics like infant mortality, childhood mortality, maternal mortality, and on and on. So when you look at why has the model in the U.S. gone south, you start to see, well, there's two likely explanations. A big one is that we have major inequities in our care. We don't provide care for all citizens, unlike all the other countries that are being compared with. Mm. The other extreme is that we overcook, that we do too much. So the people who have coverage, they get over-tested, over-treated, and that leads to all sorts of problems, and including bad outcomes. So we, we, we've got lots of serious problems. Yeah. Well, I, I must say, I, have a f- I feel like I have a fair amount of a fair amount of experience with the the latter problem of of too much medicine or at least too much medicine being offered and I mean so it's often said that you know we have the best medicine in the world if you're you know well off or well connected and yet I always find it incredibly humbling and fairly depressing how hit or miss my encounters with medicine are I mean, I'm I'm not a doctor but my background in neuroscience gives me a, you know, a better than average position as a consumer of medicine. And, but I also find what, whenever I get put into the, the machinery of the medical system, whether it's because I'm sick or because someone close to me is sick, you know, one, of my, one of my kids is sick, rather often I experience a, a fairly tortuous adventure where, as you said, either too much medicine is offered or it could be drugs with serious side effects that are kind of dispensed with a a totally cavalier attitude. Risky procedures are recommended almost reflexively. And, uh, you know, there's a whole process of declining to go down this path rather often. And and then, as you know, most conditions are self-limiting, and then you you feel totally justified for having declined. And then, you know, there's experiences where, you know, scary diagnoses are given only to be overturned by a second opinion. And Diagnostic tests are ordered where it's revealed that there really is no thought as to basically the doctor was going to recommend the same treatment or the same lifestyle change regardless of what showed up on that particular test. I mean, it's just, I find my encounters with medicine weird almost, you know, more often than not. And this is, and I consider myself to be probably in the the most fortunate possible position with respect to being a consumer of medicine, and yet, with a possible exception to your own, whereas you're, you're a celebrated physician, right? You're a physician with, you know, you're not, you're not just an average physician, you're a, a very connected one, and, you know, you've made significant contributions to your field, and yet you open your book with a totally harrowing encounter with your own, you know, medical history. I'm, I'm sure you've talked about this a lot because you, you open your book with it and it's fairly arresting, but perhaps just give us your experience with you know, something like medical malpractice, which you as a physician still 
it seems, couldn't protect yourself from. Right. Well, Sam, it was harrowing. Uh, That was a good word to assign to it. I was having a knee replacement. It was almost three years ago now. And uh, I had thought it would be uh, pretty straightforward because I was pretty physically fit and, you know, thin and relatively young compared to a lot of people who have knee replacements. And I had referred many patients to the same orthopedist. So I had some confidence. But what happened was I had a disastrous post-operative complication, which I didn't even, I'd never heard of the word, arthrofibrosis. And part of that really was I had a high risk that I didn't know about because I had a congenital condition called osteochondritis dissecans, which set me up for that. So mm. this really was, was horrendous. I, you know, I was, couldn't sleep. Uh, I was in pain. Uh, I was taking opiates. And uh, I went, showed up, uh, you know, with, with all this, you know, really bad state with my wife to the orthopedist about a month after the surgery. And uh, he said to me, I need to get some antidepressant medications. Right. And I said, what? You know, so this is like the shallow medicine, uh, you know, robotic. I mean, here's a, here's a human expert who did the surgery. That wasn't the issue. It was the post-operative care. And I think that's telling. I think that almost everyone now who I talk to has had either on their own or their family members, loved ones, have had a roughed up experience. And that's what it was for me. Yeah. So maybe this doesn't account for your experience. I mean, on on some level, there's a fair amount of bad luck there. I mean, and also just, I mean, obviously the diagnosis was missed or your your risk potential for that complication was missed. And we can talk about the way in which AI might make that less likely to happen. But I don't know, it feels like there's there's just a problem in the culture of medicine, I mean, medicine is is kind of a, a priesthood. I mean, it's it's like the, the way people relate to doctors is a far less straightforward transaction with respect to the use of another person's expertise, and it's difficult to navigate for almost anyone because, in part, it's the subject matter. I mean, you're dealing in some, in many cases, either with life and death questions or a concern, a legitimate concern about, you know, significant disability or suffering or, or risk. And I don't know, we know so much about how impossible it is for for people to navigate their own cognitive biases. I mean, we know that physicians are making diagnoses based on their clinical experience in ways that, re- that really distort the, you know, the, I mean, their sense of probability and the accuracy of diagnosis is is way off. I mean, this is something you touch in your book but by reference to Danny Kahneman and, and Amos Tversky's work. There's something about the culture that, again, we, we haven't yet introduced robots into the, the equation here, but I mean, can you say anything about that? I mean, I, I, my, I, my, my impression here is fairly inchoate, but I just realized that there's, I mean, just the, just the process of, you know, getting second opinions is often weird. I mean, and what, and what you right. do with opinions that can't be reconciled and I mean, how how do you how do you see the effect of putting on a, a white lab coat on on <laughs> on the, the you know the conversation and and the the relevant cognition? Right. Well, uh, you're touching on this medical paternalism, which is the sense that you know doctor is a know-all entity, and that 
wasn't as big a problem decades ago when there was a lot of trust, there was presence, there was a deep relationship, and it really an intimacy, an inner human bond. But what's happened over time is that paternalism has sustained, and at the same time, there's very little time with patients. It's very much a lack of presence because, you know, doctors are looking at keyboards and they really don't have the time to, to cultivate a relationship. So it's gotten much worse. It's the same problem, the basic problem of the kind of authority, control, don't question my opinion. What do, what do you mean you need a second opinion when everyone should be entitled and feel very comfortable to have that second opinion? But this doesn't fit in any longer because there's not the relationship. It's eroded so seriously over the last three or four decades. Hmm. It's interesting, despite how much we're spending on medicine each year, and again, the, the, the costs are just going up and up, the field is actually very slow to adopt new technology. And I, I mean, this is something that we've all noticed the transition to, to electronic health records, which has seemed somewhat dysfunctional and, and, and somewhat haphazard. I mean, and that, you know, that, it just feels like as far as this adoption of tech, medicine is, I mean, apart from, you know, the introduction of some new scanner from time to time, it seems more like the FAA dealing with old equipment than, you know, than it looks like Silicon Valley dealing with the, the latest breakthrough in, in consumer tech. So how, how do you view medicine and tech in general? Yeah, it's a pretty sad story. A lot of people think digital medicine arrived with the electronic health record, and that was an abject failure, a disaster, because when those were introduced, they were set up for billing purposes without any consideration of how that would affect either patients or doctors or, or other clinicians. So it re really, that, that was actually the motive? It wasn't to be able to, to aggregate information better? No, no, it's just to have really good billing, to not miss things. Hmm. And it's amazing. And uh, it's not really ever improved. It's the most clunky, pathetic software and across all the different companies that are in this business. And it, that had led to doctors becoming data clerks and has been one of the most important aspects of why there's such profound burnout in the medical field, with hmm. more than half having expressed that they are burnout, but also over 20%, even with clinical depression and the highest numbers of suicides ever in the medical profession. Mm. And is there anyone tracking just the, the actual use of doctor's time with respect to this new technology? Has the, the experience of being a doctor been more of, of one dealing with records and insurance and, and all the rest and, you know, year by year? Exactly. So what's happened, I mean, a most recent study was that 80% of the time that medical residents were spending without any contact to patients because they were working on electronic health records and administrative tasks. And all the recent time studies that have really delved into this show a two-to-one or greater ratio of time away from patients. So that this electronic health record, which is Unfortunately, the precursor of bringing the digital world into the medical profession 
has backfired. It's really been a serious hit to the care of patients. Mm. And what about other technology like diagnostic imaging? And I remember, you know, but I've had a few adventures in cardiology, which is your wheelhouse, you know, you know, like, you know, a CT scan, you know, calcium score scan. And it's, again, I, I have found the way in which this imaging ha- has been dispensed to me. I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've done it and, you know, happily, I guess, you know, I, I would probably be telling a different story if something scary and actionable were found and I had felt my life was saved by it. But the way this, this was dispensed to me, was just kind of cavalier enough, and it was just like we we now have this new tool. Let's use it. And there was nothing. And I got to the end of the process, and it was really there was just it was pretty clear that it just didn't make sense in in my case to have right, done this. And right. so, how do you view just the, these intrusions of new machines, which which could be very useful, but are either used in cases where there's just no reason to use them. And I, mean, I guess we should also talk about the prospect of type 1 errors here, where people get false positives, which then they go chasing with yet more intrusive procedures and incur other risks. Exactly for that, too. The, the, the problem here is we've got a lot of good technologies, but they're misused. They're overused. So the example you gave of a calcium score with a CT scan to see whether or not you may have coronary disease. That test is terribly overused. I, I have never ordered that test. And mine was worse. I had an angiogram. I didn't just have the, uh, the ordinary uh, CT. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that is likely fits into the, the so many patients that I've seen for second opinions who have become disabled, who have become adversely affected by the results of their calcium score, even though they have no symptoms, or others that have been told their lives have been saved because they were whisked away from the CAT scan to then have an angiogram and stents or even a bypass operation. So, you know, cardiac cripples have been a result of some of these scans with no patients without any symptoms, and it's really unsettling. So this is an exemplar of so many tests that we have today that they can be helpful in certain individuals, but they can be very harmful as well. And, I, and I, these particular harms, so I guess there's, there's two problems here. We have the, the underuse or lack of availability of medicine to people who really need it I and mean, who have substandard care in a first world society, our own, that doesn't compare favorably to the rest of the developed world. But then what, here we're talking about the high class problem of having having a more consumer relationship to advanced medicine where you have access to the what are ostensibly the best doctors, the best hospitals, the best information, the new scanners. And uh, although, although even there, I mean, just, just, just to get, give you a, a reference point for this, this angiogram. So like I, I went to a, you know, a highly regarded cardiologist on the assumption that, you know, whatever scanner he would be putting me in would be the latest and lowest dose of, of radiation scanner. And then I, you know, I, I get the scan and I see the, the amount of radiation delivered. And I just kind of check this with a, with a friend who's a physician who, you know, has access to, you know, similar doctors. And, and he said, yeah, you know, if, if I had ordered the scan, you know, you would have gotten, you know, one third the amount of, of dosage. 
there. So it's like, I'm not quite sure why that you got put in that scanner. And just the fact that there's that kind of variance, I mean, not, not, you know, I'm not especially paranoid about this. I don't, I understand that this doesn't raise my cancer risk all that much, but the fact that in the most prestigious networked circles, there could be that kind of variance is just bizarre to me. Well, you've just touched on something as a pet peeve of mine, which is why don't we tell patients when we order a test or say they should have such a test that uses ionizing radiation about how much radiation they'll be exposed to. That is, we don't have to use the millisieverts units. We could say it's equivalent to how many chest x-rays. All right, so this this physician, who I will not name, but whose name w- would be known to you, as part of his patter, I mean, I asked, you know, the, the perfunctory skeptical questions about whether this scan was necessary and how, you know, what, what my dosage would be. And he said, well, yeah, it's analogous to you taking 10 flights to Hong Kong this year. <laughs> Has some has someone told you that you should shouldn't go to Hong Kong ten times this year? And, and and I said no, no, that sounds fine. I mean, it's a lot of Hong Kong, but you know, I I can do that. But then when I actually you know saw my dosage and and did a little arithmetic, it was more like you know 150 to 200 flights to Hong Kong this year. Right, right. right. So I mean, so it's just you know again, I, I guess I could be an airline pilot this year and it's okay, but still, it's just to have that wrong by orders of magnitude, it's just bizarre. Well, and also, I mean, you, if you take it by number of chest x-rays, when you tell a patient that's like 2,000 chest x-rays, they say, no, no, I- I'm not doing that. Right. So if we just were real about, and the other thing you, you mentioned, I think has to be underscored as well, is that there's so much variability in the exposure of the radiation. So we have Again, this is out of paternalism. There's, you're, you're rare because you actually asked your doctor, but most patients just go and have the scan. Right. And so this is something that's just not right because this is information that everybody should be entitled to, and they should be part of the decision of whether they want to accept that type of exposure to radiation. Okay, so let's, let's bring in the robots. <laughs> How did you get interested in AI? When, did, when do you date your, your awareness of it as a, a possibly relevant technology for you? Well, you know, I had been working in the prior times on digital medicine. That was the Creative Destruction Medicine book and also democratization, the patient will see you now. So the next part of the story was, okay, we've got all this data. You know, we've got the electronic record we've been talking about. We've got scans. We've got the genome. We got the microbiome. We have all this data. We can't possibly, no human could assimilate that data. And we're also democratizing it, whereby patients are going to be generating and working and getting algorithmic support of their own data. So it occurred to me that we have a data flood, but we are kind of at a dead end. Where are we going to go with this? Most data was just being stored in healthcare. It still is, in fact. So how could we get out of this with AI? So basically, I spent a few years researching the topic and reading everything I could. I'm not a computer scientist, so it really was starting from scratch in many respects. I also spent a lot of time with some of the leading lights in the field, like Pedro Domingos and Fei-Fei Li and, and several others. So that was what led me into understanding where AI could take us, where are the obstacles. And it also gave me an appreciation of what the far-reaching 
benefit could be. Right, right. Well, so AI is sort of in medicine already. I guess we'll talk about Watson, which is is, is the most well-marketed version of it, I guess. Well, before we get to before we get to Watson, what is AI currently good at in medicine? What is it doing right. well in medicine? Right. Well, just to differentiate, just AI, the subtype, of course, deep learning that you know well, which is this pattern recognition applied to either images or speech or text, and that's the sweet spot right now is images. Uh, you can take images like the scans we're just talking about or image of the eye, the retina, or skin lesions, or, you know, so many parts of medicine as image-centric. And you can get machines to be trained to interpret the images better than humans, see things that humans can't and will never see by taking hundreds of thousands or millions of very carefully labeled images and training deep neural networks to see them, to differentiate their features. So that's the exciting part of AI. It's only about a decade old. And as you know, just recently, Jeffrey Hinton and his colleagues at University of Toronto got the Turing Prize, which is like the Nobel Prize in computer science, for their efforts in deep learning. Yeah. Yeah. So now, but is this, how routine is the use of it for pattern recognition. So if, if someone goes and gets a, an MRI and that scan is being read by a radiologist, what's the likelihood that that radiologist is using some, has some cyborg-like relationship with an AI program helping to read that scan? Well, it depends on where you are. If you're in China, it's pretty high likelihood. If you're in the U.S., it's starting to, to take hold. It's getting legs right now, but it's still probably in single-digit percent of mm. U.S. hospitals, but it's going to be eventually be the standard because it will increase the accuracy and speed. And one thing that's noteworthy, which I wasn't aware of, is that over 30% of medical scans have a false negative. That is, something is missed. Yeah. And so that can be brought down to, you know, single digits and eventually, you know, very close to zero with the use of these algorithms. So we definitely want to embrace this and to improve accuracy and reduce both the false negatives and false positives. And so there's just a great opportunity to, to rev it up with this. Although there is a tension there. The process you're using to reduce your false negatives is probably increasing your risk of false positive. Right. And that's the other thing we have to do, which is these careful prospective studies which there's been very limited number to date in medicine, which shows that that trade-off of getting the accuracy really high is not offset by some harm. So, you know, we have lots of great studies across almost every medical image you can imagine, from x-rays to MRIs, CTs, ultrasound, I mean, everything. And we don't have too many prospective studies to show how it affects patients by, as you say, picking up things that radiologists currently or other doctors currently miss. There seems to be a, a point on the map here where we can be getting more medical information about ourselves that is both consequential but 
you know, not actionable, right? So you could, this because this is probably especially true with genetic screening, right? So you can, as as we get better and better at understanding which genes are are, are doing what and and exposing us to to disease risk, people can get fairly a fairly comprehensive risk profile about themselves and even leaving aside the fact that people are often in a bad position to think about those probabilities in a, a rational way there's often very little i mean at the moment there's very little to do about the specific risks or certainly there's very little to do beyond what you would recommend that people do generically anyway you know stop smoking exercise etc are you concerned about the the prospect of so the uncanny valley of too much information where we, we, we really actually are getting great information, but we're just stuck more or less worrying people to no good end about their disease risk? Well, I think that's changing. I understand your concern. Recently, there's been remarkable improvement with, let's say, polygenic risk scores. One example is with heart disease. So there are so many people who take statins today, you know, tens of millions of Americans who take statins, and only two out of 100 will actually derive benefit beyond having a nice lab test of their LDL cholesterol if they don't have already have heart disease. So you have, you know, 97, 98% of people who are taking these statins that are not really deriving benefit. So now there's a polygenic risk score, which takes hundreds of the letters of a genome that are commonly variant so that this can be done, whether it's like 23andMe or Ancestry, or hopefully we'll be able to do this for less than $20, a so-called SNP chip, looking at 1 million letters of the genome. So it's, it's a small piece of the genome that has 3 billion letters, but they're the common letters that have a association with various common conditions like heart disease and like type 2 diabetes and cancers like prostate and colon and breast and, and many other conditions. So this polygenic risk score that looks at hundreds of these variants can indicate on a 0 to 100 score of your risk of heart disease. And so this is really helpful because the higher your risk, the more apt you're going to be benefiting from statins. And if you have no other risk factors and you have a marginal cholesterol, you know, the question is, why would you take a statin if your risk is less than 20, uh, a score? So that's an actionable thing that is new. We have actually a, an app that you can do that for free, MyGeneRank, that Ali Torquemani and our group developed. So we're going to see a lot more of these risk scores. It's starting, you know, the, the genome sequence that was back in 2000 it's taken almost two decades to get to a point where there's real utility. And these are data that has been validated in large numbers of people, hundreds of thousands, if not even millions of people. Unfortunately, it's mostly European ancestry, which is problematic, but at least there's one ancestry where the data are really helpful. Right. And there's, there's lots of actionability. I mean, I just gave you one example, but we can run through others if you like. The point is each of these risk scores that have been validated will help people guide and ultimately, ideally, prevent their condition. And so this, I think, will make us smarter over time. Right. Well, so, so to take that example, let's say you found someone who had moderate risk, right? So it's not, 
they're not at either tail where it's you know it's clearly exculpatory because they're super low risk or they're super high risk and and the a statin is a a straightforward recommendation you know someone's right in the middle are you just medicating their LDL and and more or less treating their their blood work or do you think it would make sense based on this this genetic incorporating genetic information to to give them a statin yeah it's a good question that's the gray zone so then i think that's where there's discussion you know if the medicine is not causing any side effects muscle weakness or inflammation and everything else is fine it's up to you know the patient wants to stay with it i think what's really interesting here is that this is apart from the known risk factors this is independent and markedly additive to things like smoking and diabetes and right. family history so you know, when I had this done, you know, I, my score was 92. And I said, whoa, because I had no family history heart disease. I got a lot of baggage of my genes, but not that. So I started taking statin. And, uh, you know, I, so I think it's easy when it's, you know, less than 20 or greater than 80. But as, as you've just uh, asked, that's, of course, a more difficult one. And that's really uh, a decision that should be made jointly with the person and their their doctor. Right. Well, so stop me if this is too personal, if you don't want to re- reveal your, uh, your blood work. But I'm wondering, was your evaluation of risk entirely based on the genotyping? Or is that in concert with your b- having bad LDL numbers that you were already worried about? Yeah, my LDL was, you know, 110, 120 in that range. So it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't great, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, having a flashing light. You need to take a statin. But this thoroughly convinced me that I had a risk that I didn't appreciate. Right. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to see eventually, in fact, you know, there's been two editorials in both JAMA and the New England Journal in recent weeks that said this is the future in medicine, not just for heart disease, but across most common conditions. So I think we'll see that it's taken a long time for this outgrowth of the genome era to finally start to have a role for common conditions. But uh, you know, I think I've certainly seen, and we have had now thousands of people that have used the MyGeneRank app, and we're going to try to build that out for these other conditions. I think you know, it's going to have a place. It's, it's supplementary to the, what we already were, were doing, but something that's clearly of potential benefit. Well, that's interesting. So yeah, I think that's, that's exciting to be aggregating the, the genetic information in that way. So well, but let's talk about some of the less exciting breakthroughs in robot medicine. I, I guess the story about Watson is perhaps you should just introduce the concept of Watson because maybe it hasn't been as well advertised as I imagine. Well, who is Watson and, and what are his powers? <laughs> right. Well, the Watson you're referring to is the IBM Watson. And uh, unfortunately, it's been very little contribution except what could go wrong that it was out in front and i think the 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 idea was right like many other ideas in medicine the idea that you could use ai to process this flood of data but after the whole jeopardy triumph the idea was to deploy ibm watson for for healthcare so just to remind people what watson was was winning at jeopardy and and it was this sort of deep blue experience of, of now the AI is better than, than a person at this seemingly higher cognitive human task. 
Exactly. So, you know, beyond, you know, beating Gary Kasparov in chess when it beat the Human Jeopardy champions, it was supposedly ready for prime time to, to help the, all the ills of medicine. Right. And it, it basically has flunked. It, it, it's in the book, I describe the whole scene at MD Anderson, one of our leading cancer hospitals which spent tens of millions of dollars to bring in I.B. Watson to, to, to deal with their data, the patient's electronic record, the uh, scans, the pathology slides, and, you know, and on and on. And it failed. And eventually uh, it was a debacle there. But it hasn't made any substantive contribution to date. It's mainly used in China, of all places. So it's, it, the main... F- Initial efforts were in cancer and oncology, but so far, the, the only real published uh, report was matching up patients that were missed for cancer clinical trials. But you don't really need AI to do that. So that's why I say it, it hasn't really measured up, and the advertisements, the promotion, the marketing has been just overwhelming. So even though it was the first to really go after this, it, it hasn't made a significant advance. Its main marketing angle that I was aware of was that it, it would essentially read the literature and aggregate all of that so that you, could, you as, a, as a clinician could have access to you know, some super-powered differential diagnosis that would be otherwise unavailable. Because I, I think at some point in the book, I think you say there are, there are 10,000 human diseases that, we, that have been categorized, and obviously right. no physician can keep all of those in his or her head. Some are quite rare. And then there's just the exploding literature. I don't know what the doubling time of knowledge and pseudo-knowledge is with respect to medicine, but it's got to be on the order of you know, doubling every few years. So that the prospect of having a machine that can make sense of all of that and spit out the right nouns and, and probabilities in response to a query, that, you know, th- that's obviously a kind of oracle that we want to build. And that it seems that Watson was being promised as that oracle. Is that, is, it, yes. is, is nothing like that has happened? There hasn't been a... Right, right. <laughs> well, it's a laudable goal, as you've stated. But, you know, in the book, I have the, the, the actual advertisement of a doctor who sa- it says, you know, I read 5,000 articles and then I go see patients. Well, that isn't true because Watson can't read 5,000 articles. It can't even read any article. The problem is it's unstructured text. So we, we aren't there yet. We haven't cracked the case for AI deep learning to read text. In fact, it's the same problem that was experienced at MD Anderson. And, and the, most of the electronic record is unstructured. So it's something we eventually will be, that step will be made, but we're not there yet. And the idea of having the corpus of the medical literature as incorporated into the le- deep learning of each person to help promote their health is terrific. But we're still, you know, at least a year or two, if not more, away from that goal. Mm. We can't forget how tantalizing this prospect is. There's a simple example that you use. I'm not sure if you use it in your book. I think I, I heard you use it in some talk you gave, where if you just compare, if you just look at, at human retinas, 
you know, there, there are no ophthalmologists that can tell you. I guess it's not the it's not the retina. Is it the retina or the iris yeah. of the eye? No, the the retina. Okay. You're right. Yeah. So if you look at human retinas, you can't tell the the sex of the retina, right? You don't know if you're looking at a, at a man's eye or a woman's eye. But AI can now tell with something like 98% accuracy. That's right. And uh, there are uh, better ways to perhaps tell the male or female. Yeah, that's right. You could, but, but, you could but, step you know, back a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's probably the best example of the fact that the machines can be trained to see things that humans can't. And that was with retinal experts that right. have no clue of what it is. We still don't know what those features are that machines are picking up. When they were, were fed, they were fed hundreds of thousands of retinal images with a known gender. So that's, I think, the, the classic example of today to show that machines are going to have a lot of power. Our brains can only handle so much, and they can be trained uh, to supersede certain narrow tasks like that. What's fascinating there is so as you said, we don't know how they're doing it. So this is a kind of black box. This is a, another issue with respect to the development of AI. So we're building some AI in a kind of black box way where there's not really transparency with respect to how it's doing what it's doing, however successfully it may be doing it. And I guess we could, we could ask whether that matters in, in any case. My intuition is, is that it's it matters for some things, but when you're talking about being able to differentiate benign from malignant cells, for instance, I mean, if it, if it was doing that with 98% accuracy under a condition where human beings couldn't do it at all, I don't think we would care that we didn't know how it was doing it. We would just want, want to get 98% up to 99% and beyond. But it is a, it's an interesting intellectual problem. And I'm sure there are cases where a lack of transparency could come back to bite us. You're bringing up, I think, an important controversy, Sam, and that is the comfort of uh, not having explainability of the algorithm as compared to enhanced accuracy with the background that there's lots of black boxes in the way we practice medicine today, the way humans practice medicine, doctors. So we have lots of things that we don't have any explanation, but we, they're part of routine medical practice. Do we want to hold uh, machines to a higher level of accountability? Ideally, yeah, sure. Uh, and in fact, there's lots of effort going now to deconstruct, using AI to deconstruct the deep neural networks. And so hopefully we'll have you know, much better explainability over time. But this is an area where, you know, many people feel, look, if there's a black box algorithm, I'm not going to use it in medicine, whereas I think the point you've just made is really a valid one. So, so you're, you're drawing an analogy to, let's say, certain drugs that are prescribed empirically because they, they seem to work, but we may not actually know why they work in, in certain cases, and, and we don't really hold that against them. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, anesthetics, or how about electroconvulsive therapy? For yeah. severe depression, we have no idea how it works, and it has you know pretty substantial impact. So lots of things in medicine are without a mechanism, without real knowledge, but we use them because they 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 work, or they the, the model you know is effective. So that's something we should keep in mind as we as we uh, delve into this more over time. Mm. 
Now, what about the prospect of, well, let's talk about what success looks like. So let's say we get AI that really works as intended. What does that look like in medicine? And what, what, what about the prospect of automating certain jobs away, right? So which, which jobs are most likely to become cyborg-like jobs where, you know, you are Gary Kasparov playing with the tools and becoming the best possible chess engine, medically speaking? And where are machines likely to just supersede human intelligence and then the the formerly well-compensated, much-esteemed medical specialist gets reduced to somebody who's just servicing the the robot. And in, in that case, I guess it could actually select for a, a very different skill set in a doctor, where the, you know, the doctor has to be less of a medical expert and more of a, just a, a kind of a, a good person with a great bedside manner and the, the, the relevant skills to, to navigate you know, the decision tree in response to the information that the machine is, is spitting out. How do you view the coming successful automation of medicine? Well, you've, I think, outlined the bifurcation that we face, which is the, the main premise of the book, as it turns out. And that is, we're going to see tremendous increases in productivity, efficiency, you know, accuracy, speed, via this capability, by, by this technology. And one thing would be is to try to squeeze doctors and clinicians more, see more patients, read more scans and slides, and on and on. The other would be the gift of time, and basically finally accepting that we need to take this enhanced productivity and build back the relationships, the presence, the trust, the empathy, communication, and all the good things that used to be and are the essence of medicine. In fact, restoring so that the mission of why people went into medicine in the first place is brought back so we, don't, we can alleviate the problems we have of, of burnout and depression among doctors and, and nurses and clinicians in general. So it could go either way, Sam. We could make things a lot worse. We could start trying to get rid of doctors because we have other ways to improve efficiency, or we could say, you know what, it's time to take this technology, which is unique, and we may not see this, something like this again for generations, and say, you know what, this is so powerful, let's bring back the humanity in medicine that mm. we've large, largely lost. So it, it isn't clear. It's going to take some real major activism among doctors, which are not known to be highly aggressive and standing up for themselves, their profession, and their patients to actualize the opportunity. But I'm, I'm picturing some specialties being fundamentally vulnerable to breakthroughs in, in automation and others being fairly invulnerable. So uh, the one extreme, I would, I would imagine a radiologist, right? I mean, once once the analogy to chess is truly borne out and there's just there's no way a person can read a scan as well as a machine then what is the role of a radiologist at that point yeah well you know jeffrey hinton and others have proclaimed the end of radiologists i think that was grossly premature 
and in the in the book I go through the fact that radiologists are still needed to provide oversight because you don't want to entrust an algorithm with undergoing a major operation or a diagnosis of cancer. I mean, you need you need to have that looked at. It, algorithms can have a glitch. They can have malware. You know, they need somebody, particularly when it's an important call, to over, oversee it. But in addition to that, radiologists are not doing a lot of things that they could do really well today if they had the time. So, for example, you know, we already talked about unnecessary tests, and they could be a gatekeeper for that. Mm. And even more importantly, the idea that, you know, the radiologist is an expert and sees things that machines don't see, has the context and could talk to patients. And that, does, that rarely occurs today. You know, they're in the basement in the yeah. dark. They never come out of the basement. Or, but as it turns out, if you talk to radiologists today, they'd like to talk to patients. And in fact, they have a lot of wisdom to impart. And so they don't have a vested interest in doing the operation or you know, have the, the, the hammer for the nail. They just right. want to tell it, tell it like it is. So I like to see radiologists take on these other roles provide the oversight, but more in addition, to have this dynamic contribution to the patient's story about what to do, because they are in the neutral zone, and we're not tapping into that today. Yeah, I'm just wondering, though, if, if the, the expertise or, or, or the, the qualities of personhood will be, the, the selection environment will change, because, I mean, so on the other end of the continuum, I'm imagining that the least likely person to be automated away is something more like a nurse, right? I mean, like the, the need for, for great right. nursing, I think, will be around longer than the need for great radiology, at least as I'm imagining this continuum. And I'm, I'm imagining that, I mean, it, just take, if interpreting scans becomes as bulletproof computationally as chess now is right where it's just you just you turn on the machine you know you're going to get impeccable chess at this point nobody's worried about you know maybe the machine is going to forget how to play chess or maybe this particular chess game is is just going to be too hard we really need to bring in gary kasparov to to sort this out the machine is just going to be better than gary at this point and uh, at a certain point it's going to be so much better that even asking gary his advice is going to introduce noise into the system though he doesn't want to believe that yet. <laughs> I'm reasonably sure that's coming. <laughs> he, he's whole, he, he puts a lot of weight on the fact that si human-machine human cyborgs are still the best teams. But I think, you know, if that hasn't disappeared since the last time he made those noises, it's, it's going to disappear <laughs> soon. So l let's just say that something like that's true for, for reading scans. Do you conceive of a time where just a, a fundamentally different skill set would open up where it just becomes more like nursing on that side of the the hospital and and or more like you know what you encounter now with like a like a genetic counselor right like you know if you're going through the process of you know getting pregnant and and uh, you're, you're in the maternity side of the hospital you'll you'll get various genetic tests and then you'll be you'll find yourself across the desk from a genetic counselor who's not you know you're not being ushered in to talk to somebody like George Church or some you know molecular biologist or some geneticist who's doing the research, you're, talk, you're talking to somebody who has been deputized to sort of make sense of what we currently understand about risk and, you know, whether you want to want to get an amniocentesis performed or something like that. Do you see that 
the introduction of AI might just kind of reshuffle the deck for what it means to be a, a medical specialist? Yeah, I, I do. I actually think that what it can do is promote those interactions like you're describing, the tough calls. So instead of a lot of simple things in medicine today, like urinary tract infections and ear infections and skin rashes and, and on and on, that can be automated. The patient will be able to diagnose accurately with algorithms right. without ever seeing a doctor. But the discussions like you're highlighting will be the mainstay of the future of medicine because of this gift of time and this offloading of many things to patients. So it isn't just the, that the doctors are going to be benefiting from support and this, as you call, cyborg relationship. It's also patients. So, yeah, I think that, that what we're, what we're going to see is that the, the time when people come together, patients, doctors, genetic counselors, nurses, it's just going to be more of this, this human bond, this need for you know, real exchange of important considerations and thoughts, you know, serious matters. Now, th this raises the, the other specter for me of once automation subsumes a lot of our knowledge in this area, is there the, the prospect of more or less just losing people who have the full skill set of, of being a physician, right? So you, you're now no longer in the presence of people who, who can save a life in, in the, the ordinary sense because, and I guess the uh, here, an analogy comes to mind to let's say you know airplane pilots if it if pilots begin to rely so much on autopilot and and high tech sensors to correct for problems i think we're i think there's some cases now where we're learning that there's insufficient training on you know going to manual in certain circumstances when when the the high tech sensors fail so that you have pilots, certainly younger pilots, who just don't actually know what to do in certain circumstances, which were fairly straightforward in a previous generation, and a few crashes have been have been attributed to that lack of knowledge. Is there scope for that in medicine, or or is that just a a worry we don't need to have? Oh, I I think it's always good to worry about things like that. I think the idea that you start to rely too much on algorithms and AI. It could get us into trouble. And I especially am concerned because of all the vulnerability of AI tools, you know, the privacy, security, the uh, potential to make inequities worse and the bias and, you know, the whole idea that they could be hacked. Yeah. We just don't want to ever let our guard down on that because, again, it's, it, the machines aren't going to diagnose necessarily that they've been hacked themselves. And this is where I, you know, the, the, the humans that started the whole thing need to also be keeping an eye on them as well. Yeah, well, the, the problem of, of cyber terrorism and, and, and kind of malicious hacking is, I mean, that just, that's terrifying on every front. I mean, when you just look at how reliant we are on information technology and how even just physical systems that should seem totally self-contained and functional without the internet you know, make a call to the internet just to perform their most basic functions so that you can just, you can basically lock down a hospital based on a, a, you know, a cyber attack. That's scary, but it's, that visits us everywhere. I mean, power plants and, you know, anything else we, we need to have civilization function. Is there anything specific with 
privacy concerns that are there special worries here that get introduced by greater reliance on AI or, or is privacy a concern just already at, at 10 in general with respect to people's medical records? Well, uh, yeah, I would say it's a 10 and it's maybe not so specific to the healthcare world, but there is something I think deserving emphasis and that is people don't own their data and they don't have all their data and they're generating more of their data like with sensors no less genome and other biologic layers. And so the problem we have is these deep learning nets, neural nets, they're only as good as the inputs. So it isn't just the privacy. It's that people don't own and don't have, can't control their data. It isn't all in one place. We don't even have a home for it to have all that uh, amount. So that's going to hold us back because if we had that construct, uh, that ability to have all that data together and and a person who should rightfully own it, that would make these these algorithmic outputs so much more ideal and and less compromised. Yeah, that seems like a a business waiting to be born. I'm sure someone's trying to crack this. But the fact that every person is trailing just this tangle of medical data, you know, in, in all these different places that is not just hasn't been made to cohere. You know, it's a, um, there's an opportunity there, obviously, for getting better data into, into this personally actionable, but also just, just in general in research. I mean, we just, I don't know how you're aggregating data in bad handwriting from 10 years ago in a person's file, if one ever does it. Yeah, eventually we, it is a great, I don't know of anyone, any entity that has made significant strides, but this virtual medical coach Mm. to actually prevent illnesses that otherwise would occur at the individual level, it's going to rely on having all that data together for the person and give feedback as, as more data are accrued in a seamless, continuous way. So, you know, we'll, we'll get there eventually. I I hope that we can uh, accelerate to some degree. All right, so I have some uh, bonus questions for you, Eric. If you're, these these, these going to be rapid fire. Okay. If you had one piece of advice for a person who wants to succeed in your field, and I guess you could think about that as medicine generally or cardiology specifically, what would it be? Well, it's trying to challenge dogma, just not accept anything as a finality or or that there's the last story. and so. You know, whatever it is that in reading, in the practice of, in the profession, this is really a a vital thing that enough emphasis isn't put on. Is there specific advice you'd give to people who are just starting their medical training with respect to any fields to focus on or avoid independent of their interests? I mean, I I guess, you know, I I mean, you, you sound more hopeful about the career of a future radiologist than, than I was assuming, but would, you, would it be warranted to say that there, there are a few fields that, that you wouldn't recommend people go into if they want to be a member of that field 20 years hence? No, actually, I think to being the contrarian, that radiology will go through a renaissance. Hmm. Interesting. That is just questioning that, is this, do you want to live in a dark room in the basement or do you want to show a new phenotype of radiologists? You know, that, mm. that's that challenging the dogma, challenging the 
kind of the, the status quo. And so I, I actually think that across the board, there's, there's great opportunities, but you don't want to accept the, the, way, the model of today for the future. Hmm. What, if anything, do you wish you'd done differently in your 20s, 30s, or 40s? Hmm. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, let's see. That's a good one. I, I guess I, you know, led, when I, in my 30s, I, you know, I had a lot of background in, in genetics from college, and I kind of led that straight away from it. And I wish throughout I had never lost that grounding because I think I, it took like a, at least a 10-year hiatus. Mm-hmm. And I somewhat regret that because I still am fascinated by genetics and genomics. And I think that having that stretch of time where I almost ignored it was really, uh, that was a, a mistake. 10 years from now, what do you think you'll regret doing too much of or too little of at this point in your life? Hmm. Well, I guess too much of, you know, maybe <laughs> trying to keep up on the field is, is a challenge. Uh, you know, I read a lot and maybe I shouldn't try that hard. And what I should probably do is be spend more time completely out of the medical sphere and, you know, mm-hmm. just be I tend to be too centered and in the kind of areas that I'm into. And I, I really, it's a mistake to do that. I, I somehow I'm, I'm addicted to that info junkie in areas of, of, of interest, but I think it'd be better to just explore and delve into areas that are far away from, from that. Mm. What book should everybody read? <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, well, you know, I'm a little biased there, but you know, a couple of my favorite books were written by Sid Mukherjee, mm-hmm. uh, who's a who's a friend. Yeah, of course, uh, the Emperor's uh, Maladies of Cancer and the Gene, and uh, along that Carl Zimmer's book on on the, the Gene. Um, those those are superb. But again, they're areas of my interest, so uh, that's how I recommend them. Yeah, no, uh, Sid has been on the podcast, I think, twice, and. Yeah, those are those are great books. What negative experience, one that you would not wish to repeat, has most profoundly changed you for the better? Well, that one's pretty easy, Sam. That was the whole Vioxx story. And, um, you know, it made me stronger in my family to take on that. It wasn't just Merck. It was also my institution at the time. Can you give us that, that history? Yeah, well, it's, it's painful, but, uh, you know, back... In 2001, we authored an article in JAMA uh, about how Vioxx was associated with at least a doubling or more of heart attacks, and that was attempted to be squashed by Merck. But it was real. It was unquestionable. And uh, back then, in 2001, you know, I was quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying this could, we could be facing a public health disaster. And little did I know that was the case. And so three years later, Merck precipitously withdrew the drug. And they also claimed that they had always been looking out for patients, which was an outright lie. Mm. And so I took them on about that because I felt that they could have taken the drug off the market at least three years previously, instead of trying to deny it and accusing us and me of data dredging and all sorts of other things that were untrue. And so what they did is they went after me. They also used people of the institution that I worked at 
to also go after me. Mm. And it was painful. And uh, it was a near career ending experience. Wow. Somehow survived it, made stronger. And I don't think I'd ever go through that again because taking on a major pharma company and being a whistleblower of sorts is not, in retrospect, you're not going to win. And nothing was ever done. You know, Merck never paid a price for this. There was no one ever indicted. There was clear-cut evidence of activity of suppression. Wow. And so, you know, you learn from it. And it's definitely, you know, it strengthened so much. Good things came out of it. But during a two-year period, it was absolute torture. But presumably lives were saved getting Vioxx taken off the market. Well, there isn't a question that heart attacks were reduced and you could make that inference, yes. Mm -hmm. And it's just so sad because that medicine was fine at the right doses with the right caveats, the mm -hmm. warnings. But the, the company was unwilling to make those kind of compromises. Mm. What most worries you about our collective future? Well, because of my interest in medicine is that we are going down, down south in so many ways, uh, that the, the roughed up, the shallow medicine, the model that we have today, which is so broken, that it could get worse. It's almost inconceivable, Sam, that it could get worse, but I think it could. And so I, I think if we don't turn this around with the opportunity we have that's staring at us right now with the use of AI and this multimodal data that we've never seen the likes of, then we've lost something that uh, we might not see again for all too long. If you could solve just one mystery as a scientist or a physician, what would it be? Hmm. Wow. That's something I'd have to think about. There's several, <laughs> several on the list. What would be the top priority? My goodness. Mm. I got I to gotta put my mind to that a little bit longer. Okay. All right, well, this one might be easier. If you could resurrect one person from history and put them in the world today, and you could give them the benefit of a modern education, if necessary, who would you bring back? Oh, my gosh. There's so many. You know, one person who I think is fascinating for many reasons is actually Thomas Jefferson. I, I, I went to yeah. college at UVA. Yeah. And uh, obviously, there's some black marks about Thomas Jefferson, which has only come out of the genome era. But um, I think that would be fascinating to do that. There, there's many other candidates. In fact, there's a long list I might be able to offer you, but mm. he's the first one that came to mind. And finally, the Jurassic Park question. If we're ever in a position to recreate the T-Rex, should we do it? <laughs> uh, well, George Church is kind of onto that yeah. in one way or another. I find it fascinating area. Uh, I don't know. That, that one is a, uh, that was a big unknown. I, I think it would be really interesting, but I'm not sure if that's going to really help us advance. It would be fun one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, listen, Eric, it's really, it's been an education. It's really been fantastic to get you on the podcast. And uh, again, the book is Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. And uh, I certainly hope it does. Thank you for your efforts here, Eric. Oh, thanks so much, Sam. Really enjoyed the discussion with you. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. 
And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.